Jeff Smith and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and I'm here to share them with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Scott Aaron. He's an LinkedIn expert. Scott is also a three times number one bestseller, a speaker, and is the go-to specialist when it comes to establishing connections, generating leads, converting traffic, creating sales, and building personal brands using LinkedIn. Scott is passionate about helping fellow entrepreneurs to achieve success while building their own network organically without complicated and costly tactics. Important aspect, I think. In today's episode, Scott is talking about how to create wealth online and generating organic traffic, which is a real game changer when it comes to competing in a saturated digital world. So let's bring in this LinkedIn expert himself. Welcome to the show, Scott Aaron. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, grateful and honored to be here today talking. Hey, mate, it's wonderful to have you here today. You're looking so cool, relaxed. How are you doing today? Uh, cool and relaxed. I think you hit the nail <laughs> right on the head. So I, I couldn't have described it any better. Absolutely wonderful. Well, I want to find out about your three best-selling books, How to Be Competent on LinkedIn, and of course, the massive impacts it has on our business. But before we do that, I want to find out more about you, Scott. So three questions. You can tackle these however you like. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? So I was born uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, life as a child uh, my sister and I talk about this often. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, I am um, blessed to have two very, very loving, caring, uh, amazing parents. Uh, they're no longer uh, together. They're, they're divorced, but they, they have found their respective happiness outside of that marriage, but still remain friends, which is a very nice thing. But I, I have nothing but the best childhood memories of my parents, my dad, being my coach in sports and uh, my mom always being my biggest cheerleader and always uh, being there to support me for advice and, uh, you know, really helping me develop uh, and grow uh, into the man that I am today. Um, and as far as uh, dreams, aspirations of things that I wanted to be when I was growing up, in all honesty, I wanted to be uh, a professional basketball player. 
I, um, I had a, a, a deep love and passion for the sport. I still do. I still, you know, play recreationally, still watch it very, very diligently. I support my home team, the Philadelphia 76ers. But, you know, when you're 5'9", and, you know, you don't really have the, the height uh, and the uh, attributes that it takes to make the NBA, I kind of knew that I had to start focusing on other things. But as a kid, you know, you have that dream, you have those aspirations, and that's what I wanted to be when I was growing up. Okay, so there was a guy who was under six foot in basketball who did real well. What's his yeah, name? The, the, the smallest basketball player ever to play professionally was Muggsy Bogues. Uh, he was five foot three, uh, Tyrone Bogues. Um, there have been a, a couple others. Um, there was a, a gentleman that went to George Washington University, Earl. I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember his last name, but he was five foot five. And then people remember Spud Webb, uh, who actually won two slam dunk contests in the 1980s. He was five foot seven. So it's not impossible, but improbable. Uh, I, I, it, yeah, I, I just like when you can only think of three people that were that uh, sort of height um, out of the entire you know history of the NBA. Uh, you, you know, you have a very very. Uh, slim chance of making it happen, but anything is possible. Yeah, but that didn't stop you. So you still enjoy the game. So then you go to school, you go to college. What was the journey for you then? What were you thinking? What were you uh, educating for? Well, uh, I, I didn't know. I, uh, I I chose the University of Pittsburgh, which is a, a state school here in, in Pennsylvania, uh, where I grew up. And I was undeclared. I really didn't have a business focus. I, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Uh, the backstory is my father owned various entrepreneurial industrial businesses um, and then ended up selling partnership in one, breaking partnership in another, and then began working for someone else, uh, managing multiple locations of physical rehabilitation spots within fitness clubs. So my father always had an affinity for, for fitness and wellness. Um, he did bodybuilding when he was younger. He competed. Uh, he always in shape. He still is today at 70. He does bench press contests now. I mean, he's pretty remarkable for what he's still able to do. Uh, but his real deep passion was health and wellness. So when I was uh, a freshman in, in college, this is 1997, my, my father uh, was exiting out of the managing role of the company that he was managing. And uh, he wasn't doing it because he wanted to. He was doing it because he actually had to as the company was under investigation by the federal government for insurance fraud. And uh, my father obviously was highly involved, not in the fraud, but he was highly involved in running the company. So he was a person of interest in this fraud case. So in between my father cooperating with the federal government and leaving this company, he, he needed something to keep the family going. We, you know, my mom was in sales doing clothing sales, but um, I was a freshman in college. My sister was a sophomore in high school. So, you know, obviously there needed to be, you know, income coming in to support us. So my father ended up taking a job uh, working for 
one of the chiropractic offices that uh, he became friendly with. But when they found out that he was being investigated by the federal government and it took place in the space of a health and wellness club, um, even though they attested to the federal government that they trust him, they don't want to terminate him, they want to have him here, um, the, the government said you, you cannot have him employed there. So now my dad was, again, what do I do now? So with the help of my two grandfathers, the the fitness club that this chiropractic office was being located in was not doing too well and they were looking to sell. So my father, uh, with the help of my two grandfathers, uh, helped buy out and purchase this gym, um, which my father took over. And in the process, my father did uh, a, a plea deal with the federal government um, in, in hopes of lessening the charges, which, again, didn't really work in his favor. The judge had other ideas. So there was a six-month window where it was kind of up in the air of what was going to happen to my father, whether it was going to be house arrest, whether it was going to be prison time. And he was running this gym. He was there literally every day from the minute the gym opened at 5 a.m. till it closed 11 p.m. at night. So when my father did get word from his uh, law team that it's not looking good for him, he should start making some preparations for keeping the gym going. Uh, this is where I kind of entered uh, in the equation. So uh, my father... Um, let me know uh, prior to going back for my spring semester, my sophomore year, that I was not going to be returning to the University of Pittsburgh. I was going to have to re-enroll at a local community college uh, for the time being, and then I could transfer to a local university near where the gym was because um, depending upon what was going to happen to my father, I may have to step in and A, work there, or B, take it over. So how old were you at this stage, Scott? 19. Wow. I was 19 years old. Mm -hmm. So I, I was a teenager. You know, I was just going into my sophomore year at university, still undeclared, still undecided. Uh, but that decision was obviously going to change because my father did end up getting sentenced to two and a half years in federal prison. So when that happened, uh, the gym was turned over to me. So as a, as a 19 year old kid, I was now responsible for owning and operating uh, a business when I had never been a business owner. I had never managed people. Uh, I had never uh, marketed anything in my life. This was completely new and unknown territory for me. But at the same time, I still had to get my education. Now, looking back, I didn't need to finish college because what I'm doing today, even what I did in the fitness industry, didn't require a college education. But my parents were very, uh, I, I would say, you know, they felt that it was really important for me to continue and follow through with what I started. So I was still going to college full time while running the family business full time. And okay, let, let me just hold you there for a moment then. What would a day in your life look like at that point? So... I would wake up um, at around seven o'clock in the morning, um, shower, have breakfast, 
And uh, I would drive to the university that I was attending to be there uh, by 8 a.m. for classes. And the way that my schedule was split is I would go to class from 8 to 12, uh, Monday through Friday. So they were stacked, what sometimes I had a half hour in between. But the first half of my day was spent there. And then um, when class ended at 12, I would then drive and go to the gym and I would get there around one o'clock and three nights a week, um, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, I was actually there from one to 11. I would work 10 hours I, and I would close the gym and uh, we, would, we had no washing machine at the gym. So I would have to bring all the dirty towels home wash them in the washer and dryer at, at my parents' house. And then the clean ones would be taken in the next morning by my mom. Um, the other two days, uh, Tuesdays and Fridays, I was, uh, I would s still the same thing. I would go to college till 12, drive to the gym at one, and I would still work till nine o'clock um, at night. And uh, I even worked Saturdays. For uh, half days, I would teach a couple classes, and it was I was a, a full time college student, but also a full time business owner at the same point. I was working, you know, over forty hours a week, but also going to college, um, you know, twenty hours a week as well. So it was a very very busy time in my life. Yeah, what was your mental state at that time? Because your dad had been incarcerated as well. I mean, that's pretty tough to deal with, especially when you're so close to your dad. I mean, my mental state was good. You know, looking back, uh, I had a, a wonderful support system with my friends. Um, I'm, I'm still friends with my guy friend. We just went out to dinner a few weeks ago. I've been friends with them since I was five years old. They really stepped up and did what they could to support me, spend time with me, you know, keep me occupied to to make the, the, the two and a half years go as, as quick as possible. Um, but I was also in that, that mental state being a 19 year old kid that, you know, I wanted to make my family proud. Of course, so yeah. uh, I, I knew it was a bad hand that I was dealt, but I was going to make it work either way. So, you know, I was, I was excited. Uh, I, I was, uh, motivated. I was driven because the livelihood of not only this business, but my family was on my shoulders and I was going to make this work one way or another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 19, 20, 21, thankfully at that age, we have the energy to do it because we don't have the other responsibilities that we have when we're in our 30s and 40s. Correct. So at this point, where was your head? Because I ask because your dad has been incarcerated and you're looking after the gym on his behalf, right? Now, were you going in your head, were you going to continue working with the gym or were you just the caretaker for two, three years until your dad came out and then picked it up and then you went on with the dreams of your own life, whatever they might have been at that time. So what, what, where was your head? What was the plan? In the beginning... I think it was the uh, the latter. Uh, I would do what I had to do and then kind of fade back into whatever goals and dreams that I had. Um, but as as I mentioned, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. 
Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And in that two and a half year span of running and operating that, that business, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with health and wellness. I'd always been a healthy individual, but I never worked out until I was working in the gym. You, you got you to gotta look the part. So I started working out. I started eating really healthy. Um, I got certified as a sports nutritionist, a personal trainer, group fitness instructor. I was, I was in. Like there was no, it, it helped me in so many ways that I actually was able to correlate into, into business. Because when you think about running a successful business and becoming a successful business owner, you need to have structure, you need to have routines, and you need to be consistent. And if you take that and you apply that to health and wellness to, to build any body, right, to, to build, you know, your muscle, you have to be consistent with your routine that you put into place and you need discipline. You know, you got to eat healthy. You got to cut back on certain things that aren't good for you. So there were so many lessons were learned in that two and a half year experience because I didn't have anyone to fall back on. You know, growing up when you're when you're in the house with your parents, like if, if you have a problem, you can, you know, knock on their door, walk into the den and say, hey, dad, hey, mom, I got a problem. I, I didn't have that. You know, I, I had general managers, but I, I, yes, I could go to them for help, but they were looking to me to help progress the business. Now, that being said, my sister and I would go visit my dad every Sunday. That, that was kids day. So him and my sister and I would drive to go visit him and we would spend about three or four hours together. And a lot of it turned into, you know, I would bring paperwork from the gym. I would print out the membership list. I would go over, we would go over numbers. We would game plan. And that is how I, I learned how to operate the gym. He would kind of teach me and show me from there. And I would take what I learned, bring it back to the gym and then kind of move forward. So at a certain point, I would say about a year in, uh, I, I kind of knew that I found my home. I, I knew that, you know, I can't wait for my dad to come back and we can do this together. And, you know, what I've done without him, imagine what could be done with him in the gym. So it, it helped me find my path of helping people, of being a problem solver, being a people person, asking lots of questions, and honestly, learn from the grassroot way you know, how to grow a business from the ground floor up and what needs to be done to make it successful. Okay. So let's go forward then. Was your father released after two and a half years? So um, he went away uh, the summer of 1999 and he came back in the winter uh, of 2002. Um, didn't directly come back home. He actually had to go to a halfway house in downtown Philadelphia uh, where he could work. And he actually couldn't work at the gym for six months because that is where the prior crime happened. So uh, one of his friends from growing up uh, owned a business behind the gym. So there was a, a small alleyway that led to the street behind and he owned a, a bar stool and kitchen appliance uh, store. And my dad actually worked there for the six months. So um, I would grab lunch, walk down the block, have lunch with him, game plan. He could visit the gym, but he couldn't work there. He couldn't work there, yeah. Until about six months later when, you know, that part of his sentence was up. 
He was allowed to move back home. And then um, towards the middle of 2002, he was fully back in the gym with me. Cool. That must have been tough. It must have been real tough for everybody in the family. It's, it, it was. I, I think everyone handled it a little bit differently. You know, I think, you know, that, that did lead to uh, eventually – it, it led to the demise of, of the relationship between myself, my, my father and my mother. They were married for 33 years. Uh, I think for my sister, it, it affected her a little bit differently because I don't want to say she was outside looking in, but she was in high school, going into college, um, you know, still kind of figuring herself out. You know, for me, I, I was highly involved in the entire situation, not only with my father being removed from the equation, but I was the one that had to step in, you know, and act as him. I was taking his place. I was standing in his shoes. So, you know, I, I basically became his shadow at that point. So uh, again, going back to my point from earlier, it, it was definitely a challenging uh, and difficult time in my life, but it, it, it shaped me in ways that, if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't be who I am today. Of course, of course. So three years on, your dad is now fully released. He can go home. He can work in the gym. You're now 22 years old, I guess. Yeah. What, what, does, what happens now? So uh, I had grown the gym from around 300 members to 1,200. Uh, the gym grew from about a 200 thousand dollar a year business to about a four hundred and seventy five thousand dollar a year business um i mean it exploded and um our landlord who loved us gave us the opportunity he had another property in another up-and-coming area about a mile and a half away from our gym and in the city a mile and a half is like 15 minutes so it's not as as close as people think it's 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 not that close but he's he gave us the suggestion he goes listen i love working with you guys love seeing what you did with this place he had an affinity for uh and and a, and a deep appreciation for myself and my mom because the burden of the of the business was on our shoulders and we stepped up and made it to what it was so he really appreciated us and the hustle uh the entrepreneurs in us and um, also the, the deep appreciation for family. He was a big family person and so were we. And he gave us the opportunity to actually look at a space to open up a second location, uh, which we did. So in 2003, about six months after my father was fully released back into the gym, uh, we opened up a second location. And that grew very, very quickly. Uh, and strangely enough, at the end of 2003, early 2004, uh, we were approached by another family to actually buy both gyms for a million dollars. And that was not the goal, the plan, or the intention. Uh, the goal and the plan and the intention that we had as a fitness family was to open up as many locations around the city of Philadelphia as we could. We, want to be, we wanted to be known as the fitness family of Philadelphia. Now, when you're offered a million dollars, that obviously changes the scenario a bit. And it was, I would say, a monetary amount 
that we never dreamed was going to be offered for these gyms. But we knew that not only that was going to be a great opportunity for us to hand the gyms over, it would enable us to do other things. So uh, we did accept the the deal. And at now, this is, I was 24 years old, uh, almost 25, I became a millionaire. And uh, it, it was a, a, a very uh, eye-opening experience to, to know that that's possible in business. But it, it brought us to kind of the, the next portion of the journey of what's next. What do we do now? Yeah, we, we, we've made a million dollars. We've owned and operated these two gyms and sold them successfully. You know, what's going to be our next step? And what was the next step? So we, we had a management agreement with the, uh, the new family that took over. We were going to be managing the two gyms, helping them operate them the way that we did to kind of ease yeah, yeah. The, the learning curve. The transition, yeah. Yeah, so we, we did have a management fee that we collected, which was, again, appreciated. And I was still personal training, so I was still making money there. Um, and my father ended up finding... Uh, through a, a friend and colleague, uh, another up-and-coming area um, outside of Center City, Philadelphia. So we had a non-compete that we couldn't open a gym within three miles of either of the two locations that we sold, which is pretty common practice when you when you sell a business. Um, you know, our name was very well known, so you know, not that we were a threat, but it's common practice. So. Uh, this gym was about six and a half miles away, and it was in a very up-and-coming area of Philadelphia. But this is where the the bigger learning lessons actually uh, happened. So this was uh, a big undertaking because it wasn't a city block gym the way that our other two gyms were. The other two gyms were part of a city block where residents lived and walked. This was, yes, in a neighborhood in Philadelphia, but it was a drive-to gym. Like, you could not walk there. Uh, some people could, but for the most part, the better part of the membership base, you would have to get in your car, drive, you know, half a mile, three-quarters of a mile, whatever it is, park in a parking lot, walk up two flights of stairs, and there's your gym. So it was different. And the other thing was that it was a shell. You know, the, the first gym was actually an, an operating club that we took over. It was already built out. This one, everything had to be rebuilt. Now, because of my, my father's past hiccup, uh, my parents had no credit. So nothing in, in this new gym could be put into their names. Everything had to be put into my name, the equipment lease the build-out loan, um, the equipment financing, all, all of that, um, the, the lease of the space itself. And when you're, you know, I was still only, you know, 25 years old at this time. You know, I was still, I don't want to say naive, but again, this is all I've known. Uh, I was fully invested in this, in this profession, in this family business. And when there's a dotted line in front of you, you sign it. You don't ask questions. It's your it's your parent. You don't ask questions. You sign. Now, the the gym did not grow or go the way that we thought it was going to. 
uh, for a number of reasons. You know, number one, location. It, it wasn't in a prime real estate area like our two previous gyms. And I would say number two, uh, the industry had changed at this point. Um, the big box gyms started to pop up. The 24-hour fitnesses, the planet fitnesses, the, the places where you only had to pay $9 a month to be a member. Now, for a family-owned gym, we couldn't afford to charge $9 for a membership because we had a lot of overhead. You know, we had, we had payroll. We had 1099 contractors. We had our lease. We had utilities. We had all those things. And about seven years in, so this is now um, 2011, uh, I found myself in, in $1.5 million of liability debt from everything that had accrued from getting this gym going to having to refinance to having to use a house as collateral uh, and many, many other things. And it was, uh, it was a tough pill to swallow, but at the same time, it was another uh, part of my life where adversity was now staring me right in the face. And it wasn't a question of if I can make it through this. It was a matter of how am I going to work my way through this? Yeah, I love that. Now, let, let's come back to the viability of this third gym. It's the wrong location. This is all in hindsight, of course. Wrong location. You have to drive to it. You're not passing through to it. The world is changing. What was going in your head in the viability stage where you thought what you were doing was a good idea? You know, it's a conversation that we would always have a year-end meeting. Mm -hmm. um, myself, my father, my mom, and my cousin who ended up buying in as a, a small owner, small part owner. It was something we talked about at the end of every year. And my dad had this mindset that this is our year. This is the year. This is the year. And after you hear that five, six, seven years in a row, and it's still not your year, you, you start to lose a little bit of hope mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe, maybe this wasn't the best idea because it We've always been optimistic people. I, I still am an optimistic person. I wasn't pessimistic about this, but what what that did say and, and what I did learn from that is I said, you know what? If this gym isn't going to be what the other two gyms were, if this gym isn't going to be able to afford to pay me at all, I'm going to have to bet on me. I'm going to have to do things myself where I can create my own viable income. Because here's the crazy thing. We had that gym for 12 years. I had it for 12 years. Um, 2004, I closed it in 2016. I never got one paycheck. Not one paycheck from that gym. Any income that was made got poured right back in to pay everybody else. I was the first one there, the last one to leave, and the first one never to get paid. But I will say this, 
that's when I doubled down on my own entrepreneurial skills. I went all in with my personal training and became one of the the busiest, most productive, um, experienced trainers in the city. I was doing about 70 to 75 sessions a week, working five and a half days a week, um, earning six figures, which meant I had no time. Money was good, but I was not, I had no time for myself. Um, and I was extremely entrepreneurial in how I could make money. I was running boot camps. I was doing grocery shopping with my clients. They would pay me for a couple hours to go to the grocery store with them to help them learn how to shop better. So for me, um, I did start to lose hope that this gym was going to work, but I didn't lose hope that I was not going to be able to find a way. I knew, I still had hope that this may not work, but I can make it work for me in some way, shape or form. Okay, that's that's lovely. Now, I want to take you back and I want to ask the question again, but with emphasis more on purpose. So you've entered into this gym that was, um, I don't want to be unkind, but let's say it's a dead duck from the beginning for all kinds of reasons, right? Now I've got the advantage because I can see you smiling on camera here and nodding, yeah? So there's lots of businesses that fall into this trap in that, oh, I know about gyms or whatever it is. This is my passion. I tell you what, let's go into business. They go into business, it doesn't work, and yet, they still keep on going. <sighs> Scott, why? Why? Well, I, I think it's that when you become a business owner, uh, I would say more so when you become an entrepreneur, you have to have hope over anything else. Yes, but, okay, so the difference here is Quite rightly, you had hope in yourself mm -hmm. and you've got a business that's a dead duck and you put all of your efforts elsewhere. Now, why drag along this business that was not working? This, the, the reason I'm asking is because so many people do this and don't end up, uh, let me say, as successful as you have done. So you were fortunate in that the gym provided you the facility to be the personal trainer. Now, yep. other people don't have that luxury. They just carry on with the dead duck and then get into one and a half million dollars worth of debt and then just can't find a way out. My point here is this happens a lot. So what I want to try and get into is the mindset of what keeps you going into a business when you know, Scott, you knew this was not going to work, right? Well, number one, I didn't want to be seen as a failure. Okay. So when, when you have previous success, right? People yeah. know that yeah. you, you made it, you know, you became a millionaire. The, the last thing that you want to do is to be a failure. The last yep. thing. 
So it's the identity that you take on from past experience that, you know, if I did it before, I can do it again. So that was kind of like the, the message that was being in, played in the back of my head. Don't worry. You did it before. You know, you, you, you helped grow a gym that was in the, in the, in the trenches and, and you took it to superstardom. You could do it again. So that was one aspect. The other is I had all those members to worry about. So sometimes you put other people in front of your best interest. And and looking back, I should have closed that gym years before. Absolutely. I mean, I before I signed the second five, so we I, I signed three five-year leases. So we had our initial lease of five years, which was 2004 to... Uh, 2009, second one was signed in 2009 to 2014. And then there was a third one signed in 2014 that was supposed to go till 2019. After that, that second renewal, I should have closed the gym right then and there. But again, when you have a membership base of 1,100 people and you have a business that's predicated on helping people feel better, look better. It's where they go for their therapy. I mean, again, it, it's an outlet for people. We became, as like we did before, we be, we became a fixture of the neighborhood. People knew us, right? We were okay. yeah. local business owners. So I, I think that the two main things that that I was looking past was I was allowing my past millionaire status success blind me from what was actually really going on at the gym but underneath of that was the responsibility i felt not just for me because it wasn't i can't close this gym it's not about me it's about these people that are paying to be members here where else are they going to go i need to keep serving them no matter you know what's going on i need to put on that happy face and pretend things are going good and going well uh, because if they find out that things aren't they're going to jump ship and go somewhere else. So I, I got to keep this thing going. Okay. And what do you, what year did you close it? 2019? 2016. 2016. So what changed? Uh, well, I would say two, two specific things. Number one, uh, my father and I ended up parting ways for about a year and a half. We didn't speak. Um, this was around 2014. Um, I had uncovered uh, some paperwork. Uh, one being that my house that I, it was a rental property that I owned that I used to live in, uh, was being used as collateral for the gym's equipment. So basically when I went to go sell that property, uh, the bank, instead of giving me the $35,000 in equity that was in the house from the sale, I got a check for $837 because that house paid off whatever remaining balance was on the gym's equipment from 2004. And so 10 years later, and that was like, okay, what is going on here? And the biggest revelation, as I started digging through some paperwork, um, I pulled the lease of the gym and I pulled the most recent five-year extension that was signed a few months prior to me uncovering it. And I turned to the last page and it said personal guarantor and it had my signature above it, which at the time I didn't know what that meant. 
but now I didn't know what that meant, which means, and for those listening to this that don't know what a personal guarantor is, I was personally and financially backing that business lease. So if something happened to that gym where it went under, whatever was owed from that that lease, it would be turned over to me personally and I would be responsible for paying for it, which at that time uh, was valued at around $600,000 of additional accrued debt. And this is when I'm like, enough is enough. I can't do this. So I had the difficult conversation with my father and we broke partnership and I asked him to, to go find somewhere else to train. I need to take over this gym fully. I cannot be in your shadow anymore. I got to figure out if this gym can actually work. So he agreed. There was no... So just let me interrupt you one second. So what year was this? 2014. It was two years okay. before I closed the gym. Okay. okay. So he agreed. There was no There was no yelling, screaming. He packed his bag and contacted his clients and he started training at other gyms in the area outside of ours. And this is when I really started to dig into not only the numbers of the gym, but I really stood, I started putting pressure on my landlord because they were not doing a good job. The building was falling apart. Um, the foundation was cracking. Uh, if it rained outside, it rained inside. If, if you can catch my drift. Yeah, so yeah, it, for sure. Black mold, it was just not conducive to a healthy environment. And um, they, I, I ended up asking for, listen, I, I said, people are leaving this gym. I said, I cannot afford the rent that you're charging. Uh, you're going to have to either reduce my rent um, or you're going to have to give me some time. And after agreeing that they would reduce the rent, uh, they started keeping a tally of how much money was owed. And then they ended up um, filing a lien against me and, and the gym, uh, which I then had to take $25,000 out of my own retirement to then pay this lien uh, or the judgment that they filed so um, that wouldn't be hanging over my head. And, I, and I, this is what I told them. And this was I, I looked them square in the face. I said, I'm going to give you this $25,000. I said, I said to them, I said, if you don't take this money and start fixing this gym, I'm done. So this was towards the end of 2014, early 2015. So this is where the wheel started churning for me. I started counseling with some business attorneys, um, getting some business advice. I tried to sell the gym for pennies on the dollar. I mean, I literally was trying to sell it for $30,000. Um, no one wanted it. Uh, when you look at the P&L statement, it's a negative cash flow business. Who wants to buy something that's in the negative? We were losing about $3,000 a month, every month, and I was having to come out of pocket. Thank God I had the businesses that I had outside of it. I had a, an online marketing business. I had my personal training that I had to funnel that money back into the gym. So it's now towards the end of 2015. Um, my, my father and I 
after about a year and a half, we reconciled. And uh, I got recommended by a business attorney that I was working with to talk to a, a business attorney of his friend that helps people that were in the situation that I was in. So uh, I, I sat down with this guy and I had some numbers and he said, how much longer are you going to go through this cycle? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're, well, he goes, number one, you're living out your father's dream. You're, you're, you're picking up for his mess. It, it's, it's literally, you're, you're cleaning up after him and he's, going what he's doing it's all on your shoulders it just it just so happens that your signature is on every one of these things but it's really it wasn't for you it was for him and he said you you have these two other businesses that are more than cash flow positive they're doing extremely well but they're not doing as well because that positive cash flow is being brought into a business that is losing three thousand dollars a month and he said you have two options he goes, option A, you continue the cycle you're on and see how much longer you can do this. Or he said, option B is you file for personal bankruptcy. And I said, what? I said, I, I said bankruptcy is like the end. He goes, no. He goes, bankruptcy is not the end. Bankruptcy is the beginning. And when he said that to me, a light bulb went off. Because I didn't see it as my life is about to be over. I saw it as this is my opportunity to end my father's dream of these gyms and start my own. So he was honest with me. He said, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being slam dunk don't even think twice about doing this. One being, listen, let's reevaluate in six months and see if something else changes. He said, you're a 9.5. He goes, I couldn't recommend this way of going about moving you forward any more than I am right now. So this was at the end of 2015. And I said, well, what's the game plan? And he said, well, it's a process. And it's going to take us about six or seven months. And I said, well, when am I closing this gym? And he said, you're going to close the gym on July 1st. I said, like, like seven months from now, July 1st? He said, yeah. He goes, start letting your vendors know. Let your accountant know. Let's get the paperwork in place. Let's get all of the liabilities and all the debt that we can bring into this, which the number one piece of debt was the lease to this gym because the my landlords could do nothing. If I filed for business bankruptcy, it was still going to affect me personally. But the fact that I was filing for personal bankruptcy, it negated the guarantorship of that lease that was, in my opinion, um, unlawfully on my name. And he said, this is what we have to do. So started the paperwork and everything was filed, as he said, um, on June 1st. And then on July 1st, that is when the gym officially closed. And it wasn't, he said, just 
contact your billing company, have them stop processing payments on June 1st. So no one says that they owe anything. If if someone paid for a membership in full or whatever, you'll credit their accounts back, you know, with whatever funds are there and you walk away. And what I did was I, I closed the gym the night before, which was um, June 30th. And I wrote a handwritten letter um, to all the members. And it was almost like, I'm not sure if, you ever watched the show Cheers, but if a lot of these shows, when they end, a lot of them end by someone closing out all the lights and then they walk out the door, the door closes and the series is over. And it was almost like that. I, I was standing by the door and by the door, there was a, a panel of light switches, about six of them that, you know, from the furthest to the closest, it would start closing and shutting down all the lights as it got right to me. And I flicked the last light off. I opened the door. I closed it. I locked it. I taped the letter on the door and I never went back. And it still took about 90 days for it to go through. So October 1st of 2016, uh, I was completely discharged from the bankruptcy filing and I haven't looked back since, and that's what really allowed me to get this monkey off my back. And I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, um, when you get discharged from filing bankruptcy, once it gets approved, you actually have to go to City Hall or the, the, the main place where they do all these business dealings. And I had to meet with a judge, and he was going over all the paperwork. And he said, this is fine. He gave his stamp of approval. And I'm walking down this long hallway with my attorney. And he puts his arm around me. And he says, now you can start living your life. And it was just such a relieving feeling knowing that I didn't have any regrets. I don't, I don't feel like I took the easy way out. File, no one ever wants to file for bankruptcy. I tried and did everything and anything I could to keep that gym going, but it was harming and hurting me more than it was actually helping me. And once that chapter was finally closed and I was able to open the new one that I stepped into and obviously what I'm doing today, I'm grateful for that whole experience because there's so many business owners. Whenever I share that story on podcast, at least one person reaches out to me personally and says, thank you. I've been contemplating bankruptcy. You know, I resonated with your story. I've been afraid to do it. And I'm not saying that, you know, the sign of success is filing for bankruptcy. What I'm saying is sometimes it's, it's best to cut your losses so you can have a clean slate, learn from those mistakes so you can do it right the right way the next time. Doing it right way the next time is a wonderful way to finish what you've just said. Thank Scott, you. Scott, I want to thank you for being so honest because I know I'm pushing you and, you know, but I'll tell you what I heard. 
so I'm a business strategist myself. So I'm listening with purpose and intent here. And here are my observations. And I want to pass this on to the listener. That's why I bring it up. When we were talking about the young Scott, the 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, at no point whatsoever did you mention the PL. At no point whatsoever did we talk about money and the understanding of the finances and key performance indicators on the finances within the business. None. It was all about the dream, albeit your father's dream, of the business itself. And that, dare I say, is the crucial mistake. To use your words, that's what blinds us. It's the passion for our business that keeps on pushing along this dead duck. And then we get sucked into, yeah, $3,000 a month. What? Yeah, I'll keep on doing something else that's fruitful and keep on putting $3,000 a month into this. Now, if people are brave enough to admit to themselves, you know, when I looked at the viability, I did it through rose-tinted spectacles. I was hopeful. I'm optimistic. But at some point, it's not going to work. And it doesn't take 12 years to do that. Now, it was only when you got into trouble. These are just my observations, okay? It was only when you got into real financial problems where you go, I really can't and don't want to keep giving $3,000 a month to this. So that now we get the paperwork out. Now we start talking about the PNL. Now we start, dare I say, Scott, running a business rather than running a dream. And that's what I heard. So the, the understanding of the PNL comes before you go into business to get the viability right. Now, I, again, I've got the be benefit. I've got you on video here. And I can see you smiling and nodding and the realization. But that's a point that I want to put across to many, many business owners because I've had guests on the show with the same story and it's always, always the same. Oh, this was my dream or it was my dad's dream and I had to keep it going and I did something else to fund it. And it's only when we get into problems that we look at the PNL and KPI, key performance indicators. So here's my tip. Do it in the beginning. So I think now we're going to have a different story for exactly those reasons. Because what's happened to you now, Scott, you've had a very, very painful business in how business works, right? Yeah, you... you Sometimes when, when, the, when the pain is great enough, uh, you know, you can only touch that stove so many times getting burnt every single time to learn, you know what, I'm not going to touch that stove anymore because I know it's hot. I know it's going to burn my hand. So I'm going to learn from that lesson. And, uh, and I'm not going to do it again. So I'm not going to have a repeat performance. Absolutely. So last one out turns the light off. You put them the handwritten note on the door. What did the note say? It was, 
more about thanking the community, the members for all their support, uh, all of their care, their love, and uh, my appreciation for them for allowing us to keep the lights on for 12 years, which is which was a really good run. And we changed a lot of people's lives. There were a lot of ups and downs, but it was more of a positive than negative experience from a personal standpoint. And I just wish them, you know, continued health and success and wherever they landed as far as their next gym. And we hope that they look back and can think of and and remember all the good times they had at that gym. Okay. So at this point, you've hit rock bottom, but now you're using those rocks as stepping stones, right? Yeah. File for bankruptcy. You cleared through. Now it's time to be successful. What do you do now? So in uh, in 2013, I started to dabble. Um, this is three years prior to filing for bankruptcy. I started to dabble in online marketing. Um, and that came about because I had enough people asking me or saying, I wish I can work with you, but. And the but was, I don't live in the city. I live in a different state. You know, how can I work with you? So I started doing online wellness coaching um, through providing people workout plans and online diet plans. So it was a, it didn't require me to be with them. So this they is would, 2014. It's 2013 into 2014. So oh, a couple you, of years. Yeah, quite new into the game then. Yeah. One of the first. So, yeah. So I started leveraging first Facebook because that was my immediate market of people that I was connected to. But I, I knew that I was only as good as the amount of time I could work. But I started to put together these wellness packages where people could buy, could work with me for 12 weeks, either with 12 weeks of workouts, 12 weeks of nutrition, or 12 weeks of both. And they would pay a lump sum. And it was much more than I would typically charge for in-person personal training because I was looking to, to leverage you know, a higher target market. And that's when I started thinking about, okay, you know, I can only squeeze so much juice out of Facebook. Where else can I go to navigate, network, and connect with other business-minded people that could see value in what I was providing? And that, that platform was LinkedIn. So towards the end of 2014, I shifted my efforts over to LinkedIn and started you know, I redid my profile. I started connecting and messaging people. I started posting content. And within about six weeks, uh, I was having an average of 20 to 25 calls a week with people that were interested in finding about how I help people. And my business grew and scaled very, very quickly within, I would say, six months. It scaled to six figures. And... Um, at that time, I had other people within the profession that I was a part of asking me, how are you doing this? What are you doing? So one of my friends in particular, I taught him basically what I was doing at the time. And uh, I said, here's what you need to do, A, B, and C. 
And he said, great. And uh, he uh, texted me two weeks after we had this conversation. And he said, all the text would text said was call me. So I called him and I said, what's up? And he goes, listen, I'm not quite sure what you figured out with this platform, but it works because I'm having an average of 14 appointments a week. He said, you should be teaching this. He said, you, you found a niche that there's, there's a gap here for people like us and you could be charging people to learn what you're doing. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean charge people for this? He goes, you could charge people for this. So I downloaded an app to my computer at the time called Zoom, which everybody knows now, but back in 2014, no one really knew what Zoom was. And I remember, I didn't know what I was doing. I had my laptop. Um, I, I was in my kitchen and I had the, you know, the camera was facing like up. So all you could see was like my chin on up and I was doing a screen share and kind of, and I, I started selling these videos for like $47 and people were buying them. So then my business coach at the time caught wind um, of what I was doing. And he said, why don't you come on to my podcast and talk people through a little bit about LinkedIn because no one's talking about it. And I said, sure. So I went on this podcast and blew everybody away. It was a great, great time. And when I got off of that podcast, uh, I hopped onto Facebook just to check the evening notifications. And I had nine inboxes. And every single one said, how much do you charge to work with you? And I'm like, what's going on here? Like these people want to pay me money to teach them how to use LinkedIn. And that was kind of like my big light bulb moment where I'm like, okay, my, my friend was right. There is a hole and a gap here and I can fill it with what I created. And you know what you're looking right here, these are two patents that I have actually on my system that I created on LinkedIn. And I started coaching people uh, at the end of 2014, uh, patented the program. And that led to literally all the stepping stones in, in my business and starting that coaching and consulting practice in 2014, that was the business that was keeping the gym going because I was making six figures running that coaching practice. Um, I was taking three to $4,000 a month and pouring it into the gym to keep it going. And that was also part of the vision. You know, my, my business attorney said, imagine having an extra three to $4,000 a month in your pocket that you can reinvest into doing other things instead of pouring it into a failing business. So if it wasn't for me figuring out how to leverage LinkedIn, but acknowledging with everything that everybody was telling me that there was a hole and a gap, realizing that I can now provide a solution for how people a, don't know how to use LinkedIn, B, they want to generate more leads, and three, they want to monetize it very simply, people see value in that, and they were willing to pay me. And that's when I was able to fully step into that because, again, I had to do both. I was doing my LinkedIn consulting. I was personal training people. I was running my online wellness business, and I was trying to keep this gym afloat all at the same time between 2014 and 2016, and then again, you know, the big monkey on my back was that gym. Now that went away, I slow. when the gym went away, so did my personal training. So now I was left with my 
online wellness business and my business consulting. And then I started to say, well, I don't really want to coach and train people on wellness anymore. What would happen if I really focused on my business consulting where I can start working with higher caliber people? And that is when I shifted all my attention in 2016, so seven years ago, on just doing my business consulting and then everything else started to spring from it. My podcast, my books, my courses are, you know, then my wife jumped in in 2017 and we started growing and scaling our company to now a multiple seven-figure company. So that that was the catalyst for LinkedIn was the catalyst for everything that we're doing now. Well, that's wonderful. I want to say thank you again for sharing the story of adversity because I know it takes a lot. So now we're going to move on to the magic of LinkedIn and what are the secrets there. So let me let me try and set it up then. There are many social media platforms. So yep. why LinkedIn? Why does it exist? And what's its purpose? So initially, LinkedIn was created as an online resume forum. So LinkedIn is the oldest platform. The beta launched in 2000. Um, the open platform that everyone sees today was launched in 2002. Uh, I, like most people, started a profile at some point. I started mine in 2009, and it collected dust for four years until I logged back on to see what it actually was. But when I logged back on in 2013, it wasn't a place to get recruited or for a recruiter to find someone for a job. Microsoft actually had bought them out and converted it more into an online networking platform, but also a business exchange platform where business owners could connect with business consultants and vice versa, where product services, goods, um, and consumable products or services could be exchanged. And the bigger question is why LinkedIn? When you look at the, the social media platforms that are prevalent today, the TikToks, the Instagram, the Facebooks, YouTubes, they're all entertainment platforms. So if you think about why do people go on LinkedIn to be educated and to be entertained, right? Um, whether it's watching cat videos or whatever it is. Um, Facebook is more of a, a barbecue. That's where people go to hang out. It's like your local pub, right? You go, you catch up with people that you grew up with, you know, and you just enjoy that. You share, you know, weddings, anniversaries, deaths, births, engagements, all those things. It's more about life things happening. Instagram is more of, I would say, the reality TV show of social media. You don't know what's real and what's fake. And that's exactly what Instagram wants. You don't know. It looks like everybody is wildly successful. Yeah. Because they have so many followers that they're like, oh, they must be killing it, right? So what I love about LinkedIn, what makes it different, it's a global networking event every single time you log on. Um, you're allowed 30,000 connections compared to the 5,000 friends on Facebook. The average income is $100,000 a year or more compared to $30,000 a year or less on Facebook and Instagram. But I would say the, the biggest and most glaring statistic is the lead generation capabilities of LinkedIn compared to other platforms. 
the, the big thing is this, without leads, which are conversations and connections, you have no business. You know, you can't just post on social media and hope the skies open up and drop money into your lap. You actually have to create conversations, build relationships, trust and rapport to make those things happen. And there was a study done by HubSpot, which is a huge online marketing firm that was then reported by Forbes, where they did a six-month study comparing organic lead generation, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, compared to that of LinkedIn. And at the end of that six-month study, they found that LinkedIn was 277% more effective for organic lead generation than Facebook. So when I started looking at all these glaring numbers and differences that the sliding scale wasn't even, it wasn't even there. I mean, it was just totally tilted to LinkedIn's side. I said, this is the platform where people need to be. And a lot of people still don't know about it because what do you see on social media? You see Facebook, you see Instagram, you see TikTok, you see YouTube. But if you're a business professional and you're looking to, to build meaningful and, and genuine connections with other individuals, LinkedIn is the platform that you need to spend your time on. And that's what I also love about it is you don't need to spend hours and hours scrolling and trolling. You, I've created a 20-minute method where you get on there, you do what you need to do, you plant some seeds, you get off, you reap your harvest later. That's what it's all about. Awesome. Sounds so simple. So simple. So we're going to get into those secrets. But first... What are the big mistakes that people make with LinkedIn? I mean, there are some howlers, aren't there? Yeah, so, I, I would say the, the, the two biggest mistakes is, well, number one, um, people are treating it like Facebook and Instagram, meaning they're sharing a lot of personal pictures, scandalous pictures to get likes and comments and views. Uh, and they're not sharing any relevant or informative business advice or education. They're just kind of using it as the same kind of outlet that people do on Facebook and Instagram. You can't treat each social platform the same. You need to use Facebook like Facebook. You need to use Instagram like Instagram. And you need to use LinkedIn like LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a platform to educate and to inform your audience about the expertise that you have providing free value that builds the no like, and trust. The second mistake is, I would say, pitching and selling in multiple facets, meaning people are posting uh, about how they can get hired by them or here are my services, just blatantly just putting out into the wind, here's how I work with people, pay me. Um, I would say underneath that are the spammy notes that people attach to the connection requests like, hey, Jeff, it looks like we have some friends in common. We should connect. So there's there's no value there. Or they just say, hey, Jeff, do you want to learn how I can book 20 more appointments a week for you and bring in 30 more, 30,000 more pounds into your business every month? I mean, literally, it's, it's an ignore, block, delete right away. But I would say the worst of the worst. Uh, are the 18 paragraph long drunk log verbal vomit messages that people send you trying to pitch and sell 
and click this link and book a call here and watch this video and I can do this for you. I, I mean, there's nothing that bothers me more than when people spray and pray, meaning they just send out a bunch of blanketed messages. Sometimes they write the person's wrong name. People have called me women's names because they're just copy and pasting and they're not even changing the person's name. I mean, just lazy. Um, you get one opportunity to build a great first impression. Your reputation is built upon how people see you. And if they see you as a spammer and a scammer and someone that's just selling and pitching, you're never going to have a successful business. I pride myself on being seen as an educator, as an information source, as an expert, without ever having to charge anyone for anything that I'm providing, giving as much free value as I can. Awesome. So can you enlighten us then? This program that you have, I think we've got the basis of how it works. But on LinkedIn, it's free. But then there's a business account that you pay for. And then there's this thing called Sales Navigator, mm -hmm. which is a sizable amount each month. So do you use those? What, what do you pay for? And how does your program work? So strangely enough, I don't pay for anything. I don't pay for Navigator. I don't pay for Recruiter or Premium. And that's not to say, and before you think it, it's not because I don't support LinkedIn. My thought and theory is this. If you, A, have not squeezed all of the juice out of the capabilities of the free version, why should you pay? And B, if the juice that you are squeezing is proving to be valuable and able to be monetized, why should you have the need to do anything else? So for me, I have maximized how to use the free version where if people don't want to pay for premium, they don't want to pay for navigator, they don't want to pay for recruiter, they don't have to. If they want to, sure. You know, what I'll say is financial advisors, insurance brokerages, uh, sales navigator is a great tool for you. Uh, someone that's in uh, recruiting um, or maybe a sales position for another company, you know, premium and navigator um, or recruiter might be a good fit for you. But if, if you really want to just master the basics of LinkedIn and how to do it the way that I did, you're never going to have the need to pay for anything else other than the free version if you don't want to. Scott, my man, you're sounding like a businessman now. If only you thought like this when we had that, Jim. <laughs> well, again, you know, the, the failures open the doors to your successes. So, again, you got to learn from them every step of the way. Well, that's it. Life is about learning. Huh? Absolutely. Absolutely about learning. So you've written three books, right? I have. Tell us about the three books. Which one was first and why? Yep. So the first book was called the LinkedIn book for network marketing um, because I wanted to share my journey of the the power of, of networking uh, and marketing uh, through my eyes of, of how everything was working for me on LinkedIn. And um, it quickly rose to a best-selling book. It, it's still in I would say the top 30 or top 40 to this day, four years, almost five years later now. Um, 
And then the the book that came after that was actually more of a workbook style book because people were saying, well, you know, I would love to like write things down and take notes. So I wrote something called the marketing workbook for LinkedIn, which took the core principles of what I wrote in the first book, but put it into a nice workbook style where I went over some key points and there were some exercise pages that people can write things down. Um, the most recent book, which again, you can't see this, but you know, obviously Jeff can, um, this was my second edition book to my first one that I released in 2018. The updated version is called the LinkedIn book for sales and marketing since um, there's an aspect of LinkedIn that people still don't fully understand, which are organic and genuine sales tactics, but also how to market and brand yourself. Uh, I decided to revise the original book and obviously update it with all the new things that have happened over the last four years and re-release the book. Um, and this book actually has actually started off better than the first one. Um, I, I think I, I sold, I think at 3,000 copies of the first book to date. Um, this most recent book here, I released it in September of 2022. Um, I've already sold 1,500 copies. So um, it's doing really well. People are loving it. Um, a lot of great reviews. It's available in Kindle and paperback. And uh, again, I'm going to keep, the goal is every two years, I'm going to release a new edition because as the platform changes, I don't want my books to become out of date. So I'm going to release new versions that are going to continue to give people new education. Wonderful. So how do we get hold of them then? Um, Amazon, if you just go to amazon.com and you just literally search Scott Aaron LinkedIn, uh, all the books will come up. Uh, and again, you know, any support, the first book, there is an audible version, so it is available on audible. Um, and I'm in the process now of, I hired a, a voice actor for the first one, but my wife thinks I have a good radio voice. So she wants me, uh, to voice the most recent book. So I'm in the process of actually, doing the newest book in my own voice uh, on Audible, and that will be out at some point this year. Oh, wonderful. So if people want to work with you, because we're all excited now about this patented program that you have, a couple yep. of questions. What's involved? How long does it take to achieve LinkedIn competence? Let me put it like that. And rather than you getting flooded with how much does it cost, Let's get you flooded with, okay, let's go. So how much is your program? So there's, there's two different programs. I have a, a digital course that I update each year. It's called the LinkedIn Accelerator Program. Uh, it's eight videos that go over all of the, the core and foundational things that you need to do to succeed on LinkedIn. Uh, how to fully optimize your profile, searching and connecting with the right people, messaging people the proper way, um, the structure of your sales call to close more sales, and then building your personal brand and marketing strategy through structured posts, video content, newsletter articles, polls, and then looking at your analytics to make sure that everything is landing in the right place. Uh, the entire course takes about an hour and 50 minutes to complete from start to finish. You get lifetime access to it, so you can go through it as many times as you want, and because you get lifetime access, you're going to have lifetime access to all of the updates that I make each and every year to the program. So it's almost like a new program every single year when I add new trainings. Um, it's $1,000 USD uh, or 
People can do a two payment option. So for budgeting purposes, people can do half up front and then half 30 days later. Um, and then I do some high level consulting. If someone wants me to do it with them, so that's a done for you. If you want me to do it with you, um, I have a seven month uh, coaching program. So there's two phases. There's six weeks of implementation and then six months of strategy uh, and accountability. So we meet once a week for 30 minutes through Zoom for six consecutive weeks where I build out your profile for you. I start building your network out for you and with you. We message people together and I help craft messages for you that land the right way. I do an example sales call as if I was you talking to your ideal client. And then I build out your own personalized and structured marketing and branding strategy with creating posts, videos, articles, polls, and all the analytics. After the six sessions, uh, we would then meet once a month on a six-month reoccurring basis every month for six months to make sure everything that is in place the right way, you're getting the right results. And in all honesty, I've had people go through the digital course and they start generating new leads and conversations within 48 hours. I've had people close new sales within three days. Um, with my one-on-one -on -one consulting, it sometimes happens faster, but the people that end up investing in that because it is a $6,000 investment to work directly with me, it's more of a, a longer game approach because you're working with more higher clientele. Um, I had a client just a few months ago close a $75,000 contract. I had another client uh, close $2.5 million in new revenue and sales into their business. So if people want to learn how to leverage it the right way the first time and never have to learn something again, that's what I like teaching people. And the best part about it is the strategy that I've created only takes 20 minutes a day to apply and that is it. So you're not gonna have to spend hours on the platform, just minutes a day to get maximum results. 20 minutes, do your business and then go play. Go to the gym. <laughs> exactly. Okay, now $1,000, I like the sound of that. And I'll tell you why I like the sound of that. Before I came on, I thought I'll go get the latest prices on Sales Navigator because I've seen lots of so-called LinkedIn experts saying, oh, you've got to go premium. You've got to go Sales Navigator. And the price of that is not far off $100 a month. Yeah, I believe um, Navigator and Recruiter end up falling between $119 to $149 a month. Um, okay. And that's that's a that's reoccurring. So for the, the, to your point, you pay $1,000 once, you get access for life, and you learn exactly what you need to do. Yeah. And the thing is, you could buy Premium and Sales Navigator and still not know how to use it. That, exactly. that, that, that's the thing. Okay, that's great. So, interesting one now. What do you do to get inspired? So, you've had a turbulent journey up until this point. Now, life is sweet. Good for you. Well, well done. But when you sit down to write a book, you have to carve out some time. And then you have to be motivated to write a book. So, what do you do to get inspired? You know, I know this may sound a little cliche, but I'm always inspired. 
Um, the way that my brain works is it's always in forward momentum. And I'm always thinking about new and interesting ways of how I can impact people, their lives and their businesses. So it doesn't take much to, to get me inspired. Um, my wife inspires me and we inspire each other. And for me, I'm, I, I live in this world of creation. So I get excited because every new thing that I create is a new door of opportunity that's opened up. So for me, you know, I do have a goal of writing a new book each year because for me, uh, everything changes in my life and in our business year to year. And why not highlight those things of what worked, what didn't work, and what someone else can do to move their life and their business forward. So what really inspires and excites me most is the opportunity that I'm given each day to create something new that I know will help someone else on the back end. Okay. Now then, if you create, you create a new project, how long do you give this project if it's not working? What are the warning signals? Because not everything works, right? Yeah. So well, yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we've gotten really stringent with what we do, um, but we don't see anything as not working. You know, we kind of go back and, you know, why didn't this work? What can we retool, reframe, and then relaunch? So, you know, we believe in split testing everything and, you know, not to use too many online marketing jargons, but split testing is when you do one thing one way and get your KPIs and you get those specific numbers that um, uh, ended with a specific result. And then you do it again and you measure the results from one event to the next. And what changed? What was different? Did your email copy change? Did your ad budget change? Did your marketing efforts change? Um, was there enough new emails that you were marketing something to that changed? So um, we, we, we bounce back and we actually do better when something doesn't work because we don't want to get it right the first time. We're all about retooling and looking at certain things that need to be done that will enable us to continue to forward progress. So when something doesn't work, we're great at taking full responsibility of that, but also looking at it and say, okay, what can we do better next time that would change the numbers or the end result from what we're doing right now? So it's all about looking at it from that optimistic point of view. Well, not only optimistic, because you know why I'm asking you, don't you? Because I'm comparing your mindset now from when you had the dead duck of a gym. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can see you smiling. So I've got the benefit here. So it, it's about looking, analyzing and saying, do we drop this or what do we need to do to make it work rather than fueling it with some other idea to keep it going when it really should not be, even though right. you love it. That's what happens. Exactly. So, so it, I, I'm so thankful to you 
for being so honest and sharing your journey of transformation here. I know I've been a little bit tough with you. I'm not going to apologise because you've been a great guy. You've, you've taken it. And I really appreciate you for that. And one thing I would say to listeners here, there's so many lessons in this podcast on doing things right, doing things wrong, doing things wrong for the wrong reason, and then doing things right for the right reason. Now, I, yeah. hope, I hope that makes sense. So what I'm asking here is share this episode with someone because it's really going to make a difference to someone's life. So, Scott, I've got a really important question for you now. Sure. I ask this question to every guest that comes onto the show. It's really deep and meaningful. Are you ready? Always. Okay, Scott Aaron. What is the most important thing you have ever learned in your life? The most important thing I've ever learned. God, there's so many lessons. You know, I, I would say that um, everything is possible in life. So the meaning of that statement is um, my wife and I both believe that there's a solution to any problem. If something is not working out with a specific business, if something is not working out with a specific relationship, if something is not working out with a specific person, there's a solution for that change. And I always go by the uh, Roger Bannister story. Uh -huh. And He's the, the English guy that broke the four-minute mile, right? When yes. everyone said it could not be done. Sir yes. Roger Bannister, actually. Sir so Roger Bannister was told by multiple doctors that if you try to break this four-minute mile barrier, your heart will explode. Do not do it. And... He didn't take that uh, to heart, no pun intended. <laughs> and he, uh, he ended up breaking the, the record um, at the time, and he, he was the first person to ever run a sub-four-minute mile. Now, again, to this point in history, it had never been done. He didn't believe that it was impossible. He believed that anything was possible, Right. Yeah, and in the in the years to follow, I believe it was in the four years that followed Sir Roger Bannister breaking that four minute mile. Twelve other people broke it as well because once a concept is proved to work, it's to, it's going to tell you that anyone can do it. So that is probably one of the greatest lessons that I've learned is that everything in life is possible. You know, if if it hasn't been done, you could do it too and or you can create the possible for someone else. I'm going to give you some stats on Sir Roger Bannister, if I may. Okay, you're, into my, you're into my territory now. So he was told, you are correct, his heart would explode, his lungs would collapse, his, his kidneys would collapse, and so his liver. The human body did not have the capability to run a mile in less than four minutes. Biologically, it was not possible. But he did it in 359.9, so just did it. So he had a pacer to, to pace him around. Now, here's the interesting part. Who was 
the second person to run a four-minute mile? You got me. And who, that's a who cares? Exactly. Who cares? You know, it was a New Zealand guy called John Landy. How long after was it that he did the four-minute, broke the four-minute mile? Was so, so yeah, 43 days. Yeah. So once it was done, 12 further pe 12 people that year went on to break the four-minute mile. And now the qualifying time to be considered for a, a one-mile run in an athletic event is three minutes, 40 seconds. Wow. And this is about belief systems because that's the only thing that changed. Biology didn't change. I mean, yes, nutrition is better now. Yes, um, we know what we need to do to train the body now. Yes, we have better shoes. Yes, we have better running. Yes, we have better training regimes. I mean, he was a student at school, right? At, at uh, university when he did it. So, so, yes, things have moved on. But once that was done, he's the paradigm shifter. So once that new paradigm was established, it was done, bam, 43 days after the whole lot was impossible. Yeah, incredible, huh? Incredible, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'd like to know now then, Scott Aaron, some people want to reach out to you. They say, right, I'll invest in myself in $1,000. I need to educate myself for life on LinkedIn. I know I don't need to give $1,000 or more to Microsoft. I'll give it to Scott instead. How do we do it? Yeah, just head over to uh, www.scotterron.net. Uh, when you go on to there, you can just click on my services page and you'll see once you click on there, um, you scroll down, it'll say LinkedIn virtual coaching. You click on there and you can select either the one or two pay option. Um, if you do want to also work with me one-on-one, -on -one, that option is there to set up a call to learn more. And uh, again, would love to connect, help, uh, and again, assist as many people as I can learning this strategy of how to leverage LinkedIn. Wonderful. Scott Harron, I just want to thank you for allowing me to push you into all of these corners, to stand up and be resilient, to tell what happened and to share your story. Not many people do that to the degree that you have. So 100% respect for you. You have been amazing. Thank you so much. I've just really appreciated having you as a guest. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate you. And again, thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. And to you, the listener, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion and be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel that you need to realize your dreams and perhaps not pushing the dreams of other people that don't work. That's been a lesson for today, hasn't it? If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the follow button, leave a review, but most important of all, please share it. Please share this show, even if it's just one person who can listen and say, hey, there's some real lessons in there for me and I need to make a difference and a change in direction for what I'm doing. Even the Roger Bannister story. So sharing it really does make a huge difference because here's the thing. Without your help, we can't succeed. 
So please, if you've had value from this show, please share it. That's the only cost. So go ahead, hit the like button, share, leave a five-star review. And on another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me on our website at jeff-smith.com. You know, I really, really would love to hear from you. So thank you again for Scott Aaron. You have been amazing. That's all from me. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. Hold up. 